following audio is from Missio Day Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Missio Day or to partner with us on mission, visit mdcavl.org. We are in week two of Advent, as you know, week two of our series through the book of Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, God's last words to his people before 400 years, really, of silence uh, before the coming of the the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Last week, as we started this series, we asked the question, is he, is God, worthy of honor? The book starts, and we're talking about love here as our theme for Advent. The book starts with God saying to his people, I have loved you. And he goes on to remind them of his covenant love and faithfulness to his people through everything that they have endured. But they have forgotten. They've discounted God's love. And so as a result, they were not taking God seriously. Instead of the the first and the best of their livestock and and produce and whatnot being offered to God as an act of worship, they were offering him their last, their least, and their leftovers. And God asks them, right, where is my honor? Where is my respect? It was a little heavy, but we needed that word, right? Today, God is going to sort of narrow the focus a little bit, at least at the, the first part of this message. It's not just the people But he says it's the spiritual leaders who are not taking him seriously. So I want to just give us a caveat because even though he will address uh, priests here at the first part of this sermon, I believe that this message has been preserved in the scripture because there's something that God wants to say to all of us. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we're reminded that Uh, In Christ, for those who have surrendered their lives to the Lordship of Christ, we are a chosen race, a royal what? Priesthood, right? So, So all of us, to some degree, we no longer need one mediator to stand between us and God uh, because Jesus, our great high priest, has stood in that gap. He has been our one true and faithful mediator, and he has made a sacrifice that allows all of us to have direct access to God. We are now a priesthood of all believers, so what we're going to see this morning is our faithfulness, both uh, to God, directly impacts our faithfulness to one another. So as we get into this, I want, I want you to be thinking about, what does it mean to be faithful? And is he, is God, worthy of our faithfulness? All right, so that's what we're going to look at. Uh, I'm going to read for us the whole, <clears throat> basically the whole passage And then we'll jump in here and and see what the Lord has for us. But if you want to open your Bible, you can follow along with me. Malachi chapter 2. There is so much in here. I'm just going to give you a warning, right? We have to do sort of a flyover, my style of flyover, which is like 10,000 feet, not 30,000. But we can't get ground level. So I can't get into all the little details that I want to uh, just because, you know, we're trying to cover one book every week or one chapter every week. But we'll get into as much as we can here. Malachi chapter 2. Starting in verse 1. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. 
Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. Keep tracking with me. I'll explain it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And was not the one God seeking, and what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, uh, we come before you this morning grateful to be your children, uh, loved by you eternally, welcomed into your family because of the blood of Jesus. And we come in our brokenness, in our weariness, in our stubbornness, um, desiring to hear from you. So Lord, these are hard words, but good words. And uh, this morning as we take a look at Malachi 2, I pray that you'd help me, Holy Spirit, to rightly divide this word. Uh, to give your people uh, your truth, and that you would use me as a vessel, as a, as a messenger, as a mailman, so to speak, and that you would deliver uh, the news, the word to your people uh, right where they need it. Um, some need rebuke. Some need challenge. Some need encouragement. Some need simply to see the beauty and the glory of Jesus. We all need that. And so help us, Lord, as we study this word um, to get what we need and to see Christ and our need for him. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. amen. All right, y'all ready? <laughs> okay, here we go. Uh, as we look at these first nine verses, uh, who is Malachi or who is the Lord through Malachi primarily speaking to? What does it say right at the beginning? Priests, Priests okay? The religious leaders for corporate worship. And what is the charge? We see this in verse 8. You have turned 
away. You've turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble by your instruction. So they're leading people away from God, in the wrong direction from God, because they are not taking God seriously. So my first point here, if you're a note taker, we only have two points this morning, is the fallout of infidelity in leadership. I know that's a mouthful. Uh, I couldn't think of a simpler way to say it. The fallout of infidelity in leadership. This is what we see in the first nine verses. You remember last week that the people were offering these sort of shoddy backburner sacrifices, right? Lame animals, blind animals, anything they couldn't sell or use, they were like, well, the Lord will take it, okay? The only reason they were able to get away with that is because the priests allowed it. The priests were supposed to be the ones who inspected the offerings. The priests were supposed to be the ones who, who, who actually sacrificed the offerings. And so they were allowing people to bring their last and their least and their leftovers. As much as their role, the priest's role was as mediators, okay? Uh, a mediator is, is someone who offers sacrifices and prayers and petitions from the people to God. As much as the priest's role was to be a mediator, they also had the role of being a teacher, They were supposed to rightly interpret and apply God's word to God's people so that they would rightly know him, know his heart, know what he desires, and know how to interact with him. You have to know God cares deeply about this because the word of God, for them, the letters, the words of the Old Testament, for us, the Old and New Testament together, our scripture, the word of God is an agent of change in the lives of God's people by the Spirit, often through godly teachers. Now, it doesn't mean you can't be changed by reading the Bible for yourself. Absolutely, you can. But God also instructs that someone stand up and teach the Word of God and help people make sense of what it's saying. And when the, people of, when the people who are charged with the responsibility of instructing God's people don't take him seriously, the fallout can be devastating. And unfortunately, it is all too common still in our day that people who are charged with the responsibility of being a pastor, a, a spiritual leader, do not take God seriously. Do not take his word seriously. Did you see uh, at the end of verse 9 where it says, you show partiality in your instruction? Okay, commentators are divided on this, but <clears throat> my sense is what it has to do with is uh, people who, for instance, uh, in chapter 1, he talks about you have um, a, a, an animal that's worthy of sacrifice and you, and you make a vow that you're going to bring it and then you bring some lame one. That that person, for whatever reason, had influence money, something that the priests saw it and were like, ah, it's okay. They let him slide. They didn't, they didn't uphold God's word. They were more inclined, they were, they were more fearful of man and his opinion than they were of God. And so they showed partiality in their teaching. And gosh, this is so common today. That there are so many <clears throat> churches in our city and, and around the country um, who gather together and do quasi-Christian practice, right? They sing some songs and they open up some scripture, but they don't take God seriously. 
There's no honor. There's no reverence. There's no passion. There's no faith. There's no expectation that God will show up and do anything in their gatherings. They are simply going through the motions of worship and badly, I might add. And God says, you think I'm fine with that? Here to the people of Malachi's day, he says, you keep it up and the consequences are going to be severe. He says, I will curse you and your blessings. Uh, Again, the priests were responsible, kind of like what I do at the end of a a gathering, giving you a benediction, right? I say a blessing for the road. Uh, In the book of Numbers, you see the Aaronic blessing, blessing, not ironic, but Aaronic from from Aaron, who was the first priest. Uh, (coughs) Excuse me. Anyone know how the Aaronic blessing starts? The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. You've heard that before, right? I do that at weddings uh, often. So he's saying, I'm going to take even the things you intend for blessing, I'm going to curse those. Because covenants in the Old Testament had blessings and cursings or warnings, okay? Every time a covenant was made, the Lord would say, if you hold to the covenant, this will be the blessing. If you abandon the covenant, this will be the cursing or the warning, okay? And what has happened is, Over the course of time, God's people presumed upon the blessings of God's covenants while disregarding the warning of God's covenants. And so he says, I am going, I will curse you. I will curse your blessings. I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. And then verse 3, Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. My, my. This is not a um, coffee cup verse, although that would be pretty awesome, right? If if there was a bumper sticker, t-shirt, coffee cup with Malachi 2, 3, and you're like, interesting, (laughs) okay? What is he saying here? Now, first of all, um, dung can mean excrement, refuse, okay, but it doesn't only mean that. Uh, When sacrifices were offered, uh, all of the interior parts uh, that would be kind of left over, the offal, if you will, if you know that term, would be gathered up, and that and whatever other waste was left was supposed to be taken outside the camp and burned, okay? It wasn't useful. It was garbage, in other words, right? And so God is saying... um, I mean, sometimes strong words are necessary, though. This isn't a bad word, but it's a strong word, right? You don't expect God to say, I'm going to take dung and wipe it on your face. You're like, whoa, what? Um, But think about this. God does not use that kind of strong language often, but when he does, we better pay attention. Jesus has some strong words, doesn't he? Okay, I think about Paul in uh, Philippians chapter 3, when he says, my pursuit of righteousness outside of Christ as a Jew right? He says, I consider all of that, everything I achieved before Christ, I consider it, the, the ESV translates it, translates it as rubbish, right? But the Greek word there means dung. It's a strong word. He's saying all my attempts, I, I think of Isaiah, right? Our righteousness is as filthy rags. That's our clean way of translating it, but it's a strong word. Sometimes strong words are necessary because you have to get attention. You have to make a point. And so here's what God is saying. You are called to offer me your first and your best, sometimes your only, right, as an offering to show that I am worthy and you are giving me your last and your least 
and your leftovers. So how about I take the worst part of your worst offering and I put it back on you? And the people go, gross. And he goes, exactly. That's what I think of your leadership. Now, some of you right now are going, glad I'm not a leader. (laughs) Except you are. Because everybody leads somebody, even if it's just yourself. And most of you aspire to be leaders one day. You aspire to be a spouse. You aspire to be a parent. You aspire to be the one other people work for so you're not working for the man your whole life. And you're going to be a leader one day. You're going to lead someone, most likely, beyond yourself. So you must also pay attention. Now look at his command. Here's what I love about this passage. Because he says in verse 2, if you will not listen, if you will not, uh, in verse 1, it's this command is for you. And what is the command? It's the command, get your act together. It's the command, offer better sacrifices to me. What's what's the command? Listen. (laughs) Listen. Honor me by getting your heart right. Listen. Take it to heart. Um, Next week in chapter 3, we're going to see sort of really the, the pivot point or the, the hinge of the whole uh, book is God says to his people in chapter three, return to me and I will return to you, right? He wants their heart. We talked a little bit about that last week. So in verse two, he says, listen, take it to heart. At the end of uh, verse two, he says, you don't lay it to heart. So we see here that God's really, really concerned about the heart. The heart in the Old Testament in the scripture is not just the emotions, right? When we say, you know, I love you with all my heart. We kind of think about like, oh, I have this fluttery butterfly, f- butterfly feeling when I think about you. But in the Old Testament, the, the heart is like the control center of your whole life. It's the seat of the, the mind, the will, and the emotions. Okay? So that's why um, in Deuteronomy 6, uh, Hero Israel, the Shema prayer, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord with all your heart. And then he goes on, and your mind and your soul and your strength, right? So he's, he's elaborating on what heart means. All of us, the, um, there, I, I heard it once said um, that God desires nothing less, nothing less than the devotion of the whole of your life for the whole of your life. That's the heart. And why? Because, because God knows when he has the heart, he has everything. When he has your heart, everything else takes care of itself. That's why Jesus in Matthew chapter 12 says, um, out of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? Because he knows that what, what comes out of you is what you've put into you. Now, why should we listen? Why should we take to heart what God has to say here? Essentially, he says in the, in the text, because I want to bless you, because I want the covenant that I've made with Levi to stand. Do you see that in verse 4? That my covenant with Levi, with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, he wants to bless you. Then he goes on to explain this covenant. Now, uh, Levi uh, was a son of Jacob, who be, the tribe of Levi, Levi became one of the 12 tribes. And um, uh, Aaron and Moses were part of that tribe. And Aaron became the first priest. Uh, and so the, the Levitical priesthood was from the tribe of Levi, from the man Levi, who was a descendant of Jacob. And so they were responsible to be those mediators and those priests. And so uh, there's some debate 
in terms of the commentaries about was a covenant actually made with Levi himself, or is he talking about the, the priesthood, the covenant with the priesthood? But nevertheless, it doesn't really matter. He says here that this covenant was one, verse five, of life and peace, and he gave it. Life and peace. Is that not what Advent is all about? <laughs> life and peace. We were reading from, from John 1 earlier in our liturgy, and it says in John 1, um, that in him was life, in Christ was life, and that life was the light of men. In Luke chapter 2, when Jesus is born and the angels uh, appear in the sky, what do they cry out? Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. Well, what pleases the Lord? Faith, empty-handed trust, receiving Christ's finished work for us that we, we understand, we embrace the reality that Jesus, the true high priest, the one and only perfect mediator between God and man, offered himself. He became the perfect sacrifice once for all, given for the forgiveness of sin. Galatians 3 says that Jesus became a curse for us in order to bless us. So there are no more curses for God's people who have surrendered to Jesus because Jesus became our curse so that we might be blessed. And so we come to him, we come to Jesus in our weariness, in our exhaustion, in our apathy, in our presumption upon his goodness. We, we come to him in our foolishness. We come to him in our fed upness with ourselves. And we turn from sin and we turn from cynicism. We turn from ourselves to Jesus, who is the, the resurrection and the life. And Jesus breathes new life into us, restoring our souls. He gives us forgiveness and life abundant, John 10, and peace that surpasses all understanding. And so in response, we walk in faithfulness in reverence to God and to his word. As the text says, we walk in, in peace and uprightness, his truth in our hearts and on our lips. And, and in response to the gospel, when we walk in faithfulness like that, God says, I love that. I can bless that. I will work with that. So it makes me wonder this morning, what is it that keeps us from walking in faithfulness to God and to his word. Man, I, I know we're all prone to wander, right? We all feel that. But when we think about how faithful God has been to us, how loving he has been to us, what keeps us from walking in faithfulness to him? What keeps us from faithfulness to his word, from trusting that his words have been preserved for us and they're what he wants for us? to guide us, to lead us, to help us know him and to walk in fidelity to him. So here in this, these first nine verses, we see the fallout of infidelity and leadership, how crucial it is that anyone who's leading anything be faithful to the Lord and to his word. But now he's gonna shift gears. Um, these last, it almost feels like two sermons, and if I was taking longer, I would preach this in two sermons, but in verses 10 to 16, um, 
we're going to see the call to fidelity in relationship. The call to fidelity in relationship. You guys with me? Wonderful. Um, I'm not going to read all of it, but let me just skim through a couple verses here, starting in verse 10. He says, Have we all not, have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? So now, if you notice, in the first nine verses, it was God speaking. But now it's Malachi speaking. And he's addressing all Israel, not just the priests. And there's another charge. And what's that charge? Why are we faithless to one another? In other words, a lack of faithfulness to God and his word in the vertical directly impacts our faithfulness to one another in the horizontal. The first nine verses, the priests in particular have not been faithful to God. They've not been rightly instructing the people. And so they don't really understand how to rightly walk with God. And that's affecting their relationships in the horizontal. Five times in the, these last handful of verses, God warns the people about faithlessness. So we already saw it in verse 10, or excuse me, verse 11. Nope, verse, sorry, verse 10 and verse 11. There we go. And it follows, right? And he, he even ends the, the section with, do not be faithless. Now, specifically, he's going to address the issue of marriage, okay? Um, for two reasons. One, it was the primary issue of the day. It was happening, right? There was infidelity in marriages happening in this day, and we're going to look at that. But secondly, because uh, marriage is the most intimate of all human relationships. And so some of you might be going, well, I mean, I don't need to listen to this because I'm not married. And with that attitude, you won't be, all right? Um, Just kidding. And some of you might not be married, or some of you might have been married, and and this might be a little bit painful for some of you to to listen to, but listen, um, number one, we're all around married people, so this has application because we're a community. Number two, it's more than likely that the majority of you will at some point be married, and so there's application to be made there for you. And thirdly, some of this applies to all kinds of relationships, not specifically marriage. Okay, so all ears here. Here are the problems. The first problem, verse 11, he says, Judah has been faithless, an abomination has been committed in Israel, that's a strong word, and in Jerusalem, for Judah, the people of God, has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Okay, that's the first problem. They've married the daughter of a foreign god. What does that mean? Covenanted to someone who is outside the covenant community. They have married someone who does not share their faith in God. And that's a big problem. God says it's an abomination. He says, you've profaned my sanctuary. And some of us might be thinking, well, why, why is it such a big deal if, if someone that I marry doesn't share faith? Like that, what, What's the big deal about that? There's a few reasons. Verse 10, he says, have we not all one father has Not one God created us. Do you know what he's saying? He's essentially saying what what, uh, God says in Isaiah 45. I am the Lord and there is no other. 
And when you come together in marriage, um, you are covenant, you, you become one flesh. We're going to see this in a minute. But, but God is saying, I am the one true God who has always loved you and been faithful to you and desires wholehearted devotion from you. And in marriage, you become intermingled as one flesh. And you can't truly be one if your affections are divided. When you become one, you become one emotionally, spiritually, right? In every way, you are bonded together as one being. And so you, you can't really be one if you worship Yahweh and someone else is worshiping this false idol. You're either going to drag them into the temple with you and they're going to be hypocritical, right? Sitting there in the service, not really paying attention, not engaged because they don't believe this stuff. Or you're going to be at worship and they're going to be at home worshiping their false god. But either way, you're not one. And you say, well, yeah, but they're cute. And you're shallow. So what? <laughs> okay, flirt to convert is not in the Bible. And so, so we need to think deeply about this, okay? If Christ is the sum and substance and center of our lives as he should be, how can we then be unequally yoked to someone who doesn't share that same sum and substance and center of our lives? Now, in God's mercy, sometimes you might be dating, you might have dated someone who was not a believer, they became a believer, or you got married to someone who wasn't a believer and they became a believer, and God can sometimes work mercifully that way, but there's no guarantee of it, there's no promise of it. And God's consistent warning through the scripture is do not be yoked to someone who does not share that sum, center, and substance. Now, there are others of you, let's step away from marriage for a minute. There are some of us in this room who have, you are a follower of Jesus, but almost none of your closest friends are followers of Jesus. That almost every important, vulnerable relationship that you have is with people who do not share your central faith in Jesus. And I am not saying in any, in any way that we should abandon those relationships and just sort of huddle up with the holy, okay? But here's what I am saying. You are the average of the five most important relationships that you have in life. If you don't believe me, write them down at some point and then look at your life and how much you're like those people, right? We influence each other. And I know you're desirous to influence them for the good and, and maybe God will do that. But to the degree, and I've heard people say, well, I don't really hang around Christians. I get along better with unbelievers. And I'm like, well, are you a believer then? <laughs> because Peter talks about how this bond that we have in, in Christ is, goes deeper than, than family, like, it's a big deal. And so I just want to challenge some of you that um, if you are avoiding or if you're not pursuing relationships with people who share your faith and you're only finding commonality with people who do not share your faith, that might be a problem. I mean, something you need to explore with the Lord. Again, I'm not saying abandon those relationships. I'm not saying don't be friends with those people. I'm just saying the reality that they will influence you more than you will influence them is very high. Now, the second thing that the people are guilty of here uh, 
we find in the later part of the text that they seem to be unfaithful to their current spouses. We see that in verse 14. God is not listening to their prayers. He's not honoring their sacrifices. Uh, Why? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife, your companion and your wife by covenant. It seems what has been going on here is that people are divorcing their wives without cause just because they're dissatisfied and they want to move on. And some of them are then, the other part of that, marrying people who aren't of the covenant community. So they're just, they're just divorcing willy-nilly. Some of them are marrying pagan wives and such. And God is like, this is a problem, okay? Now, when he says faithless, uh, this is important. The word faithless in the Hebrew language doesn't just mean unfaithful. Uh, Specifically, it doesn't just mean um, amorously unfaithful. I'll put it in PG language, okay, for the children in the room. Uh, The word actually can be translated as treacherous or deceitful. And so, yes, infidelity in that regard is part of it, but it can also be um, lying, it can be controlling and manipulating, right? There are a lot of ways to be faithless or unfaithful to a spouse, right? Not just this one way that we all kind of think of, okay? So I just I want you to keep that in mind as we go through the rest of this. So again, he says, verse 15, did, not, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the, God, the one God seeking? Godly offspring, they are not being faithful to their spouses. They're divorcing without cause just because they're dissatisfied. And he says, well, 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 remember, you're one flesh. When you come together in the covenant of marriage, biblically, you are one flesh. Jesus even said in the New Testament, what God has joined together, let no man ever separate. And Lord willing, the fruit of a godly marriage, not always because we live in a broken world, but Lord willing, the fruit of a godly marriage is godly kids, and we know, I told you last week, that this is happening sort of concurrently uh, with parts of the book of Nehemiah, okay? If you read Nehemiah 13, that same passage where Nehemiah is like punching people and pulling their hair out and stuff, what you see, this is really interesting, is that the children of, they were, people were marrying pagan wives, divorcing their wives, and the children of those unions did not know the Hebrew language. And you might go, so what? Um, at this time... <laughs> The only way you could read or understand the Bible was if you knew the Hebrew language. So what, what's happening? These, in, in Nehemiah's day, people are intermarrying. Uh, it's, not an, it's not an ethnic or racial thing. It's a spiritual thing. So they are marrying people who do not share their common faith, and they're not teaching their kids to follow God. They're not teaching them the language. And so these kids are growing up without any attachment to the God of the Bible, Because they did not take God seriously, they didn't listen to his instructions, and then they were shocked and surprised when God was not accepting their sacrifices or answering their prayers. What do we learn here? This is, this is important, okay? Let me pull back, give us some application that, that is for all of us. Relational fidelity is tied to our worship. Let me say that again. Relational fidelity, relational faithfulness, this goes for all kinds of relationships, not just marriage, but relational fidelity is tied to worship. 
which is why Jesus says in the Gospels, if you are going to, to the altar and a brother has something against you, what do you do? Leave your offering at the altar and go to them and be reconciled to them because relational fidelity is tied to your worship. You cannot separate the spiritual from relational life. And this is especially true in marriage. Uh, in 1 Peter 3, Peter says, listen, it, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way so that your prayers will not be hindered. Now that's hard because we're sinners, right? It's hard to be faithful all the time. Uh, to, marriage is really hard. Because the way that marriage math works is one sinner plus one sinner does not equal sinless perfection. That's why we make vows, by the way. <laughs> Nobody needs vows on their wedding day. Nobody needs vows when everything's going awesome. You need vows for the dirt, right? You need vows for those days where you're like, what have I done? That's why you make vows. And marriage is always hard. It's always going to be hard because there's always going to be two sinners in the marriage, okay? And I'm going to say something, and this might be controversial, but I think it's true. I'm trying to think back on my history of pastoring. I've dealt with a lot of hard things. We've counseled numerous couples and marriages, but I don't believe I have ever seen an unresolvable issue I don't believe I've ever seen an issue that was, okay, yep, it's over, separate, uh, divorce, whatever, when both spouses were walking faithfully with the Lord. Hard things, yes. Things needing other eyes on and counsel and encouragement, yes. Things that are worthy of separation and divorce when both spouses are walking faithfully with Jesus, no. I've not seen it. Now, some of your translations, I'm going to try to wrap this up. <clears throat> Are you hanging in? I feel like I'm all over the place, but is it making sense? Okay. Some of your translations of verse 16, and some of you might have, the only thing you might have known about Malachi came from Malachi 2.16, which in some translations says, God hates divorce. If you'll notice, the ESV does not read that way. Okay? In fact, um, in the ESV study Bible notes, the commentator says, Malachi 2.16 is probably the most difficult verse in the entire Bible to understand, to translate, and to apply. <laughs> and just to give you some reference, I'm going to read for you a couple of other translations so you kind of understand the different ways that this can be translated. Uh, the New American Standard Bible says of Malachi 2.16, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him, and him who covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of armies. The NIV, some of you read from, says, The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect. The New Living Translation says, For I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty. The Christian Standard Bible says, If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, he covers his garment with injustice. And of course, our ESV reads, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, covers his garment with violence. 
So you can see, and, and the way, some of you are like, oh, this is why I don't trust the Bible. No, no, no. Okay. There are very few verses in the whole scripture that are this complicated, okay? And what happens is people with more degrees than a thermometer get together who are very smart, who love Jesus, and, and who are experts in the biblical languages, and they get together and they work on translating. And some of these different groups of translators came up with a slightly different translations. So do we know for certain that God hates divorce? No. We don't know for sure, okay? But we do know this, God loves marriage, okay? Why? Why do we know that God loves marriage? Why does God love marriage? Because it is a covenant that reflects the gospel. It is a covenant that reflects the the radical knowledge of another, radical love towards another, radical sacrifice for the sake of another, radical acceptance of that other, which is the beauty of the gospel, right? That Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. He loves you with a love so deep you will never be able to fully understand it this side of heaven. He sacrificed his very life for you to accept you into his family, into his kingdom. The problem is when we don't listen to God, when we don't take his word seriously, when we don't take his instructions on relationships or marriage seriously, we make marriage about ourselves. And when we make a marriage about ourselves, we cheapen it. It becomes about our fulfillment or our happiness. And when we feel unfulfilled or unhappy, we feel justified in hitting the eject button on our marriage and going and finding someone else who will disappoint us. Divorce does violence to covenant, to our spouses and our children, to our own character and to God's honor. But having said that, I know that some of you have still the wounds of divorce. And so I want to say this, God hates the effects of divorce on his people. He hates what has been done to you, but he does not hate you. He sent Jesus for you. So, how do we become a people who are faithful to the Lord, to his word, and to one another? Did you notice here in these last few verses, um, Malachi says two different times, Guard yourselves in your spirit. Do you see that? Guard, verse 15, guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. And then in verse 16, the end of verse 16, so guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. It reminds me of Proverbs chapter 4 when um, the way I learned it, I think the ESV says um, something else. The way I learned it was guard your heart with all vigilance. For from it flow the springs of life. Guard your heart, right? With all vigilance, because from it flow the springs of life. In the season of Advent, we reflect on and we celebrate the faithfulness of God to a perpetually unfaithful people. That God's promises through the ages of a Savior, Messiah, all came true in Jesus. Not one word of all the promises of God failed, but they all came to fruition in Jesus. And Jesus became that true priest back in uh, 
verses like 5 through 7 of Malachi when we see, uh, when he talks about Levi, right? That he, uh, he feared the Lord, he revered the Lord, he stood in awe of my name. True instruction was on his mouth. No wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and he turned many from iniquity. Jesus perfectly fulfills that, right? He's the true high priest, the one, the messenger of God. Yet his own people, as we read in John 1, did not receive him. They did not welcome him, but they rejected him and they reviled him. But then we learn in, in 1 Peter 2, that he committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continually entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He was faithful to the end, to the Lord and to us. Verse 24 of 1 Peter 2 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. He bore all the sin of our unfaithfulness to God and one another in his body. He paid for every act of unfaithfulness that you and I have ever committed. And by his wounds, you and I have been healed. We have been called to die to sin, to live to righteousness. You know what that means? To live to faithfulness, to fidelity towards the Lord, to his word, towards his people. And, and as the gospel sinks deeply into our souls, the spirit empowers us to be a people who can walk in faithfulness. Not perfectly, Right? But faithfully, we fall forward towards the Lord, step by step by step until eternity, until he makes us new. So as we wrap up, I just have a couple questions uh, I want to put up. All right, and here they come. First question, um, you can write these down as they come or put them on the screen, uh, or sorry, take a picture of the screen when they're all done. But here, here's the first question. How have I seen the faithfulness of God in my own life? As you think back on weeks or months or years or decades even of walking with the Lord, where have you seen his faithfulness to you? Where have you seen him provide and protect and make good on his promises? It's not to say your life has been without disappointment or failure or interruption or confusion, but as you look back, you should be able to see the faithful hand of God leading, guiding, protecting, serving you. And that's an encouragement, right, to continue to trust in his faithfulness faithfulness for the future. So where, how have I seen the faithfulness of God in my own life? And then secondly, um, where is the Lord calling me to greater faithfulness to him? Very simple. Where is the Lord calling me to greater faithfulness? To him, to his word, to his people, right? In my relationships, in my marriage. Where's the Lord calling me to greater faithfulness to him? Okay, uh, that's all I got. I'm going to pray for you We'll leave these up for a minute, and then uh, the communion tables will be open. If you are a follower of Jesus who has surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ, you're welcome to come to these tables. Now, again, if there's an issue with a brother or a sister, go take care of that. Reconcile. Make, make those horizontal relationships right before the vertical. That's what Jesus calls us to. Um, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you can just stay in your seat. But for those of you who want to come forward, remembering the body, the blood of Jesus, uh, the sacrifice of Christ for us, the faithfulness of God demonstrated in the blood 
and, uh, and the body, the wine and the juice, uh, and, the, and the bread, then you come forward. Uh, there's two stations at each table, so you can kind of make your way through. As you, wake, as you make your way back to the, uh, your seats, there's black boxes in the back for offerings or connect cards, prayer requests, if you have those. Uh, and then the band's going to return, lead us in a couple songs. We'll get out of here. Father, thank you for uh, your faithfulness to us. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Lord, you are good, and uh, we are grateful. And yet, in this world of distraction and division and confusion, uh, it is so easy for us to be faithless or unfaithful to you and to one another. And so, give us the grace to see clearly our need for you, Jesus, to cling to you with all that we've got to receive with empty hands of faith your finished work, and empower us by your Spirit to be a faithful people, faithful to you, faithful to your word, faithful to your people, for your glory and for our good. We pray this in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.